Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week we're looking at nanowires, asteroid mining, llamas and jetpacks. But first up, here's the news. Llamas fight diarrhoea. University of Tokyo researchers have found llamas produce an antibody that attacks rotavirus, an infection that causes life-threatening diarrhoea in the developing world. The llama antibody can be eaten to treat infections of rotavirus in humans and mice because it's not broken down by digestive acids in the stomach. Rather than suggesting we feed llamas to sick children in the developing world, the researchers have isolated the genes that make the antibody ARP1 and engineered it into rice. Their paper was published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation with the title Rice-Based Oral Antibody Fragment Prophylaxis and Therapy Against Rotavirus Infection, and was a joint effort between researchers in Japan, the UK and the Netherlands. The genetically modified rice mucorice ARP1 produces the llama rotavirus-fighting antibody. Infected mice fed mucorice ARP1 had significantly less rotavirus in their bodies than infected mice who didn't eat the llama-fied rice. There are rotavirus vaccines, but they only help protect less than 60% of people in the developing world. So they need something more. The rice could be used to complement rotavirus vaccines for children under 2 years old who are the most at risk from dying of the disease. The llama rice is effective eaten, or drinking the water it was boiled in, or at its most potent when consumed as a powder. Clinical trials have proved that the llama antibody ARP1 can protect people against rotavirus, but no studies have yet been conducted in humans of the safety and effectiveness of genetically engineered mucorice ARP1. Sadly, the product is not expected to be ready for distribution for another 10 years of testing. In the meantime, we have the rotavirus vaccine, oral rehydration, zinc supplementation, and llamas. We're living in the 21st century, so where's our jetpacks? New Zealand has issued an aviation permit for manned test flights of a jetpack designed for ordinary people to fly without pilot training. Inventor Glenn Martin has spent the last 30 years perfecting his turbofan jetpack and hopes to start selling them in 2014. The jetpack is made of a pair of cylinders containing propulsion fans attached to a freestanding carbon fibre frame, complete with a rocket-propelled parachute if anything goes wrong. The petrol engine drives twin-ducted fans, which are safer than traditional rockets. A specialised version of the jetpack designed for the military and first responder emergency crews should be ready for delivery by mid-2014. A simpler model aimed at the general public is expected to be on the market in 2015. Unlike the jetpacks you'd see at sporting grounds, which will lift a human for less than a minute, 
This one will run for 30 minutes on one tank of fuel and travel 30 kilometres. So far, New Zealand's Aviation Authority has only licensed the manned test flights for uninhabited areas, so nobody will be flying to work just yet. You can find out more at www.martinjetpack.com. The prices start at $150,000. Next up, mining in space. Workers Radio at Radio Skid Row is hosted by Shard Kaur, who was joined by D, and they spoke to David Farber from Deep Space Industries about mining asteroids. This phone interview was organised by longtime diffusion contributor John August. Be aware that the sound drops out once David is halfway through the word kilometres. And you can hear some airport announcements softly in the background because he phoned in to the station just before his flight. Yeah. Oh, no, I've got someone on the line. Hello, you're on air. Hi, this is Daniel Faber calling from Deep Space Industries. Daniel Faber from Deep Space Industries. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks. How are you? That's good. My name's Shard. I'm here with my, uh, with my co-host for this morning, Dee. Morning. And, good morning. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, Deep Space Industries and what you guys are doing. You, you want to mine asteroids. Yeah, we uh, mine asteroids uh, and process the material in orbit. So, do you, are you mining asteroids at the moment? No, no. We uh, we've just started up as a company. Okay. Um, with uh, a bunch of international founders, we're uh, setting up a lab and and hopefully launching our first prospector missions uh, in a couple of years' time. Cool. Uh, it's, it's not manned um, prospect missions, I'm assuming. No, no, these will be robotic, very, very small, got to keep the costs down. Mm. We'll first be doing some flybys very quickly, get some photos, get some imagery uh, and some spectra of the asteroids, start doing the mineral prospecting, finding out about the material properties, uh, then doing rendezvous, catching up with them, uh, so we can get a, an idea of their mass and a lot better uh, idea of the mineralogy uh, and the, the geochemical um, makeup of these, uh, of these asteroids. And then we'll do some, uh, some sample return missions, bringing back 25 to 50 kilograms uh, so we can get uh, much more detail about the mineralogy mm. and use the, uh, the material as feedstock for our pilot plant and to look at all the material handling properties. How far, how far do you have to travel to get to, like, to, to start prospecting asteroids? Well, some of them come by us, so the, uh, come by the Earth. And uh, you might remember a month or so ago, there were the, um, the asteroid that... Um, a very small meteorite uh, asteroid that, that fell as a meteorite in, in Russia. Mm, mm. Um, and there are a thousand people who are hurt by that. So sometimes they actually hit the Earth. So for our very early missions, we'll just be effectively getting out and getting in the way of them uh, as they fly by uh, the Earth. Mm. Uh, and that'll let us get some information. But then to, to do rendezvous and, and to catch up with them in those orbits, 
we end up going into a, an orbit around the sun, which is very similar to the Earth, but a, a little bit different. And so the, the Earth is about uh, 98 million kilometers from the sun. Mm. So the furthest from the Earth it would be would be sort of the other side of the sun. So you might think that's close to maybe 200 million kilometers. Well, how do you catch asteroids? Do you have to kind of lasso them or what? Yeah, you have to... Uh, if you want to bring them back, our, our first sampling missions are going to be bringing back 25 to 50 kilograms. And that's really just taking a piece off an asteroid. So picking up a rock or scooping up some, some dirt, those, those kind of things. When we go into harvesting, uh, our first harvester mission will be to bring back something about um, five meters across, which is maybe 500 tons. Wow. So in order, in order to do that, we, we're either, again, picking a large boulder off a, off a much larger uh, asteroid mm. or finding a very small asteroid that just in itself is only that size and going out and capturing the whole thing. And so we could wrap it in a bag to keep it, uh, depending on whether it's, um, it's made up of, of rubble, of, of regolith, uh, of dirt, or, or whether it's a solid rock, that's going to change how we have to hold on to it and carry it. So there's a, a bunch of different things, and that's why I said we need to bring back those samples. We need to get a lot more information about the mm. material's properties and, and how solid it is, how dense it is, how well it holds together, all of these kind of things. Yeah, I was just about to ask you that, Daniel. Um, we hear all these reports in the news. There's been a lot of speculation about asteroid farming and mining and stuff like that. And um, they talk about how like there's, there could be more rare earth minerals on one asteroid the size of a football field than there is on the whole entire planet Earth. But then what are some of the problems associated with that? Like you say, like composition of it, could it, like, could it just be a massive like lump of platinum, say, in the middle of an asteroid or, on, you know, or is it, could it be all spread out? Is it, is it an easy thing to harvest an asteroid? First of all, the, um, just, just to, to correct that, the, the, they're saying that there may be more platinum in, in a single asteroid than has ever been mined from the Earth, which is oh, okay. saying that there's more than, than is in the Earth. Mm. Uh, in the Earth, all of the heavy stuff really has sunk to the middle of the Earth. All the iron and, and uranium and, and uh, heavy things like platinum. So yeah. if you're able to take the, a, core, a bucket load from the core of the Earth, it'd be fantastic stuff. It'd be basically metal, uh, nickel, iron, with a whole lot of, of heavy elements um, and dense elements. Um, and and that would be great ore, but unfortunately it's 6,500 The stuff that's on the surface is all the light stuff, the silicon, aluminum, mm. oxides, mm. Uh, and occasionally there's concentrations uh, that are higher in platinum-grade elements and those kind of things. But um, what we're able to find with the uh, asteroids is where protoplanets, the little planets, have, have started to form four and a half billion years ago when the solar system was getting its act together. Mm. And these, there were lots of them, and they got smashed apart. And the core of them, that had, they were still big enough to differentiate with gravity, and they got hot enough to melt. And the core of them was, is these nickel-iron alloys, effectively natural stainless steel. And because the, the, the um, protoplanets were smashed apart, the resulting asteroids, some of them are pure nickel. Uh, a pure nickel, sorry, a, a pure stainless steel, they're pure metal. Mm. Other ones are, are the silicate bits from the surface. And then still other ones are undifferentiated. They never were part of protoplanets. There's a whole variety there. But some of them are, are very, very rich in rare earth elements and, and platinum-grade elements. But still we're not talking pure platinum. It's still an alloy. It's yeah. just the material, it's gravity-separated. So we might be able to get um, 50, 100 parts per million um, maybe may better than that um, in terms of platinum uh, grade metals, platinum group metals that are that are in these asteroids. It's still not um, it's not a pure chunk of platinum, so you still have to extract it and, and all that kind of thing, 
what we find when we do the math and, and is that um, the value of that um, material, and specifically that platinum-grade metals, um, might be 4000 maybe $10,000 for a ton. Uh, and that, that's very rich ore if you had it on the surface of the earth. Mm, mm. Um, we, we mine things in terrestrial mines that are a few hundred dollars a ton and think that that's pretty good. But it all comes down to how economic is it to get it. Mm. And, uh, and still at, at uh, four or even $10,000 a ton um, for, for, the, uh, for, for the, the rocks that are in space, it's, uh, it still costs a lot to bring them down. So deep space industries will believe that the first markets are going to be actually in orbit where it costs so much to get things from the Earth to orbit, um, and we can um, defray that cost. We can, we can bypass that by bringing in from the asteroids, which are, are already in, in free space. Uh, and that can cost $10,000 a kilogram. So now we're talking $10 million a ton. And when you do all the math and, and figure out what percentages there are, we think that the ore value, uh, if we can deliver um, products, services, the things that people want in orbit, it's worth about $1 million a ton. And that's a lot higher than the, the four to ten thousand dollars a ton for the mm. uh, for the, the platinum group metals. With your numbers there, um, to get to go up there and do your exploration and your analysis, what kind of cost are you looking at to before you actually mine anything? How much investment will this take? Yeah, mining's not a cheap game to be in uh, on the ground or in space, as it happens. Um, Though, though we are a lot cheaper than, than some of the government programs that, that have um, a lot of rules that they need to follow. Um, so when we're doing our first, uh, our early prospecting missions, um, we'll be launching multiple spacecraft per mission and, and doing a lot of uh, risk management, things like that. But at the same time, doing very, very cheap, simple spacecraft um, and, and taking perhaps some more risk on the technical side. So we balance our risks. Uh, and we're able to do the missions for about $20 million dollars um, per mission, um, and then our sample return missions looking about fifty million dollars. And how so many missions before you scheme, actually mine? They're not free, but in the scheme of things, they're they're not as expensive as uh, as they're advertised in other places. Mm-hmm. So when can we when can we expect uh, uh, returns from the um, space mining industry? So we're um, we're looking to do our prospect missions in the next couple of years, and the sample returns fairly soon after that, launching them you know, maybe a couple of years after that. And then the harvest emissions, uh, basically as soon as we get back that material and are able to analyze it, we'll be in a position to, to launch mm. the harvesting mission. Awesome. So uh, in the end, we'll be looking to launch those, those harvesting missions perhaps as early as 2020, 2021, and then they take three or four years to, to bring the material back. So that's the kind of time frame. Uh, of course, it all depends on how the markets are looking, how the financing is looking, um, and uh, and how the technology progresses. And how so many missions? There's a lot missions? of caveats to that, but that that's the kind of time frame. It's it's in the five to ten year time frame when we'll mm. be, be mounting these missions. And how many missions do you think you'll have to launch before you actually start to um, to harvest? You talking well, a we, dozen? We or? intend to be we intend to be profitable right from the start. So in terms of, of bringing in revenues, there's lots of different revenue streams that are possible. But um, one bringing back one uh, one of the harvesting. Uh, spacecraft are bringing back uh, a five-meter diameter rock at uh, at about 500 tons. That gives us a, a lot of material to, to work through mm. and, and extract the valuable parts pieces from. So that means that, that um, we might only bring back one every five years, we might bring back one every ten years, we might want to bring back one a month. It depends how demand grows. Mm. And this is, this is a bit of, of 
waiting for the markets to appear because we're seeing space tourism coming along, which may yeah, create a, yeah. a larger demand. Uh, we're seeing the ways that do business change um, so that the, the spacecraft are going to be amenable for servicing on orbit and, and a lot of different things. So this will allow a lot of business models to change, and, and therefore there's a lot of market risk in what we're doing. We're not saying that this is a slam dunk. We understand our market. We understand how people buy things, how mm. they use things, and we have to play into that. And is it regulated? Can anybody start up a deep space exploration company and invest money and go and start mining, or do you have to go through some government checks, or what, what happens there? When you launch something from Earth, you have to get a license, and you have to. the, the government is, is obliged by international treaty to um, um, register all uh, objects that, are, that a country launches, uh, that are launched from, from entities within that country. Mm. So that's one thing you have to do. The International Telecommunications Union... Um, monitors uh, and regulates um, frequencies. And, and in Australia, the Australian Communications Media Authority has that responsibility um, to, to liaise internationally. So there's a few things that you have to do. But, um, but in terms of the, the asteroids themselves, uh, you can't get a mining license. Uh, you can't get exclusive rights to, to the rock that you're, uh, that you're prospecting, um, which makes it different from terrestrial um, mining. So uh, they, you do is, is get a mining lease. So but can you? Um, also, are you um, going to be putting weapons on, on your? Sorry, are you going to be putting weapons on your um, uh, ships then? If you're going to, if you can't uh, get a license, is there going to be little wars? Pirates? Before? Yeah, asteroid pirates. Um, <laughs> there's nothing to say there won't be. Um, <laughs> though the world now is is fairly good at communicating and coordinating these things, so we expect that uh, in the costs to go up there and, and do things are fairly high. I think there's a, a lot more benefit to cooperation than there is to um, to having a war, mm, mm. Uh, a violent competition. We do we do business and financial competition quite well, but uh, I can't see in the short term there being any uh, financial justification for uh, for having a war. It, it usually doesn't make sense uh, economically. Uh, Daniel Faber from Deep Space Industries, thanks for calling. Very interesting. Yeah. You're welcome. And um, uh, yeah, I, th I believe you're um, going to catch a flight, so um, safe travels, sir. Can Thank I ask, you very much. Can I ask one question before you go? I've heard they're talking about strip mining the moon. Do you know anything about that? Is that likely to happen? Is that just a fantasy? Um, there's been some, some talk about strip mining the moon for helium-3. I think yep. that at the moment is a fantasy. There's no market for helium-3. It doesn't really have a value um, if, if the value was production that could get turned on for that. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that's one reason that, that people are looking to do it. The other is um, that there are some useful things on the moon. Water would be good if, if people want to go and, and live on the moon, and we found some of that at the poles. Will it happen? Quite possibly. Um, when will it happen? Well, that depends a lot on technology and, and some of the things that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a couple of companies uh, out of the U.S., Shackleton Energy and, and Moon Express, that are uh, trying to put together business plans and get some spacecraft off the ground to look at those. Um, in this field with, with mining the moon or mining the asteroids, um, it's going to take, uh, you know, there's a lot of possible business models, a lot of possible ways to, to make money out of this, and it's going to take exploring and trying a lot of these. And let's, let's be honest, it's going to take failing in a few of them, but the mm -hmm. ones that succeed have, have a huge potential because there are, so, there are so much resources that we can tap out there, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's an exciting time. Yeah, very exciting. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Thank you. See you, mate.
There you go, Daniel Faber from Deep Space Industries. Um, mm. Dee, let's start up our own company. I reckon we start up Deep Space Pirate Industries. The pirate. I, I reckon there's, there's definitely, um, you could get a couple of weaponized space drones, fly up there and hijack uh, other people's asteroids just before they get to their mining kind of places. No, let them <laughs> mine it first. Let them get it and on their oh, way back. Yeah, yeah. Go and steal the booty. You let them do the hard work. No, but work. once you once you harvest it, couldn't you say that's that's ours then? You can't there's you can't lay claims to raw asteroids. Well he was saying there's no claiming. Like who's gonna yeah. administer the claims? And what if yeah. somebody does set up Space a new pirates. government body, a UN sanctioned right. bloody you have to buy a license <laughs> to mine. <laughs> that was Shard Core with D interviewing Daniel Faber from Deep Space Industries about mining asteroids in space. This interview was originally broadcast on the Workers' Radio program on Radio Skid Row in Marrickville in Sydney on the 16th of April 2013. Workers' Radio and Diffusion Science Radio are exchanging stories. They play some diffusion stories of interest to their audience, and I play some of theirs I hope will be of interest to you. Workers' Radio broadcasts between 6am and 9am on Mondays and Tuesdays in Sydney and is hosted by Shard Core, sometimes joined by Dee and John August. Radio Skid Row broadcasts in Sydney on 88.9 FM, www.radioskidrow.org. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now this week's three-minute thesis from the UTS Science Faculty. Students had three minutes to explain their research to educated laymen with only one slide. For cash prizes and a chance at the Trans-Tasman competition in October. Here's Lao Shen Zhu with N-doped zinc oxide nanowires and their applications. Okay. Now, no, nowadays, devices are highly miniaturized with the development and the prosperity of uh, nanotechnology. It is estimated that uh, in the future, a nanorobot can be inserted into the blood vessel operating on specific cells and bacteria. By injecting a certain dose of nanorobots into the blood vessel, the disease can be cured and the pain will disappear automatically. This seems a scenario depicted in the science fiction, but zinc oxide nanowires can bring these devices into reality. Generally speaking, there are two types Doped, zinc, uh, doped semiconductors, N-type and P-type. Due to the imbalance of dopants in zinc oxide, the lack of effectively P-type doped material is a bottleneck for fabricating well-conducted zinc oxide homojunctions. My PhD, my PhD project focuses on the growth and uh, optical properties of uh, nitrogen doped zinc oxide nanowires, which may possess p-type conductivity. The first step of my research is to grow zinc oxide nanowires in the laboratory and uh, observe their morphology in the scanning electron microscope. Uh, for determining the proper doping method. 
they incorporate nitrogen into zinc oxide nanowires by carrying out different post-growth treatments, including uh, nitrogen plasma and nitrogen ion implantation. Afterwards, uh, we want to find the signature of nitrogen in zinc oxide via Raman spectroscopy and uh, luminescence measurements. The Raman spectra can provide a direct evidence of nitrogen in zinc oxide by showing some nitrogen-induced Raman modes. Well, in the luminescence spectrum, uh, we expect to find the emission caused by the donor-accepted pair recombination, which is related to the p-type behavior of zinc oxide nanowires. If my research is successful and zinc oxide can be the p-type, then maybe we'll have a novel one-dimensional material. Thank you. Perfect time. Perfect time. Don't make our microphone, please. That was Lao Shan Zhu with his three-minute thesis at the University of Technology, Sydney. After his talk, the microphone had problems which disguised the question, but he was asked, Will nanowires save the world? Here's his answer. Uh, I'm not sure, but... <laughs> possibly. Yeah, it's possible, but... but I, yeah, it need, needs more, more research in the future. <laughs> you can find out more about the 3 Minute Thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Contributing to the show were Shard Core and D from Workers Radio on Radio Skid Row. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. And like our Facebook page, please, and leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station in the USA. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www. .diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.